Hello and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast with Sam and Dan. My name is Dan Martin, uh, international man of being tired and I'm here as ever with my beautiful co-host Sam Ashurst. And if I seem a tiny bit annoyed this week, it's because we recorded our whole episode on Climax and lost it to the same technical issues that played our Waterworld episode, um, which means it's basically unlistenable. Um, I'm especially disappointed as I asked people to buy the disc, and now we're not doing the episode. It's still a film that's worth owning, and all I can say, dear sweet Arrowhead, is that we've done our very best to ensure that it doesn't happen again. Um, So, yeah. Very sorry, even though it's not my fault. I don't know why I'm saying sorry. Um, and if it happens again, I will quit the podcast. So hopefully that will act as <laughs> an incentive for the person responsible for checking the wires. Um, but we do have an excellent replacement episode, which Dan will tell you about now. Hi, yeah. So obviously, uh, these things are all made in a bit of a, a rush because we're super professionals, as we promised to be. Uh, and so we are unable to re-record the, um, the client. We did re-record one before, didn't we? We recorded one way back at the beginning and then we checked back and it just hadn't recorded before we when we were just recording into the laptop yeah and we recorded it twice in a row which episode was that i don't remember but i remember that also being Being incredibly upsetting (laughs) (laughs) anyway um so this is a sort of an extra 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 features uh special so that you're not left with a horrible gap in your week yeah a a lot of people well a couple of people well one person has been asking (laughs) us to do there's this new thing that people are doing in the world of podcasts called podium, podumentaries. I hate that word, podumentary. I think it's podumentary, yeah. Yeah, um, and actually I don't know how new it is because all the podcasts I listen to are just a bit like this one, basically. But um, yeah, this is basically a podumentary in a way. I don't entirely know what the word means, <laughs> so I'm just going to go along with that. Uh, basically what we're doing is, uh, you may remember that back at the London Film Festival last year, uh, I sat down with uh, Jonas Ackerland, director of Lords of Chaos, to talk to him about the film and about the process. Uh, we've played a little clip from that in Extra Features before, but we're now going to run the full interview um, for you to listen to, um, especially after the weekend just gone's. Uh, Glasgow Fright Fest screening of the film is probably quite fresh in people's minds. So uh, have a little listen to that. And then, Sam, what's happening after that? Well, um, we'll be back afterwards for some special recommendations. Uh, and I'll have an interview with the director of Border in Extra Features. Now, Border is that amazing horror fantasy movie that was nominated for the Best Foreign Language Oscar this year. It, it didn't win, but how is it going to beat Roma? Um, it's still amazing. Uh, and yeah, in my interview, uh, the director, Ali Abazi, suddenly started talking about a story that's very close to my heart. So do stay tuned for that. And just to make it clear, the interview you're about to listen to, we were always going to run this in full at some point. Oh, yeah. This isn't like, um, you know, oh, we've got to find something to replace Climax. We've just brought it forward in the schedule. Yeah, it was um, going to go out when the normal cinematic release of Lords of Chaos came out exactly but um, a bit early as a special treat uh, because it is amazing so uh, please do enjoy Dan's interview with Jonas Ackerland um well it's nice to see you again I'm very excited to see this film on the big screen tomorrow I've seen a screener of it now and it's amazing okay Um, cool absolutely loved it okay yeah I think it's going to be really really well received I've had I've since the film played at Sundance I've been I've, uh, it's come up in conversation with so many people where they've just said how blown away they were by it. Right. Um, I did a film with um, Travis Stevens over in Chicago recently, just got back from there. Okay. And he, from Queensbury Pictures uh, lot, uh, saw it at Sundance, and that's basically why I got that film. 
Oh, okay. Because of your Great. Point. So, you know. Great. It's, yeah, it's amazing. Um, uh, I don't know if you've been told sort of what the reason for this is. In the last, uh, not really. In the last year or so, on the side to the effects, I've started doing a, um, a bi-weekly podcast for Arrow. Okay. Um, Arrow's sponsor one of the big, um, uh, like the big genre festival over here. Uh, and I very regularly have films showing there. Okay. Um, and so I sort of know those guys through that. And it is that the same arrow that bought Lords of Chaos? Exactly. Yeah. Wow. So this is. Uh, is that, that that's that's a coincidence or just total coincidence? Wow. Total coincidence. Cool. Although they were very excited to let me know that that had happened when it when it had happened. Okay. <laughs> I think they okay. Were sort of you know biting their lip. <coughs> well, that's amazing. But yeah, so it's it, I'm very excited. Arrow, are one of my favorite boutique labels mm. for you know they're w one of those guys who really put a lot of effort and and love into their releases. Um, and so to to have a film I worked on be released by them is is very gratifying for me as well. So nice. they'll treat you very well. Um, uh, cool. So yeah, for the last year and a half, I've been doing a podcast for them with uh, with my friend and co-host Sam Ashurst. So the audience will be aware of my relationship to the film. So I'm. So a lot of these questions will presume an understanding of the fact that I had some small part in the film. Obviously, your background, both as a musician mm. uh, before film and then as an editor, as you got into film, mm. will have had a, an influence on how you approach this movie. Mm. So the first of a two-part question, your earlier films like Spun and a lot of your style within your music video directing is quite f uh, frenetic and, and fast cut. And one of the first things you said um, to me during pre-production on Lords of Chaos was that you wanted to approach this in a more sedate mm. manner without being quite so frantic. And that's very evident in the final film. It's got yeah. a very lyrical quality to it. Was that, well, what was the reason for that? Why did you want to divert? Um... I don't know. I think um, <clears throat> I think it's hard to kind of like wash out my uh, way of thinking when I tell stories uh, because I am an editor and I think I, pre I write and I think and I prep and I shoot uh, preparing for the edit. So there's I think there's a little bit of the fingerprint, but there was something about the overall tone of this film that didn't really allow to go. I mean, on, in Spawn, for instance, it was exactly the opposite. I wanted to portrait, I wanted to, uh, the audience to feel like they were on methamphetamine throughout the whole film. Uh, with this, I wanted to give the audience like a chance to really think about some of these moments, uh, think about these kids, these relationships. So with that, it kind of allowed uh, a little bit more of a, I don't want to say slower tempo, because the movie has kind of like a high tempo, and it's a lot of things happening in short time, but it's it allowed me to kind of like rest on a few moments and then really go hard when I needed it. Um, and I wanted to have some sort of real, I, I wanted the movie, and I said that to you too when we worked on the movie, I said to everybody that I wanted the movie to be as, you know, as close to the reality as I possibly could. And one of the main reasons for making the movie is that, you know, to remind people that all these horrible things happen and these, they, these, these boys were very young children. You know, they were children. And, because if you Google them and see documentaries and read books and everything, you, this can, there's kind of like these uh, monsters or like these completely fucked up kids. But in, in reality, they were actually pretty normal young boys, you know, that just ended up in like these horrible situations. So with that came my um, um, 
you know, uh, with that came uh, the tone of just like slowing it down. But the movie is kind of like a little bit untraditional the way it's told because it's kind of like starts kind of like fast and then it dips and then it has these like moments. If somebody who knows who writes scripts would have analyzed my script, they probably wouldn't have approved it. You know, it's like <laughs> it's, it's, there's so much wrong with it. You know, I always see the third act as, a, as the most cinematic and slowest r part of the film. You know, so it's kind of like it's a little bit told backwards dramatically, but... I stuck to the real story, so that's what it, that's what I had. The, the the sort of juxtaposition between the darkness of the events and this actually quite sensitive portrait you've shown of of some kids making some shitty decisions and mm -hmm. it, it tearing everything apart is sort of slightly mirrored in the soundtrack work as well. I think a lot of people assumed that, I mean, obviously they're listening to metal, mm. but the incidental music, a lot of, a very obvious choice would have been to go for a, a metal soundtrack there also, whereas you've gone in the opposite direction. Yeah. Um, was that always the intention? Absolutely. I mean, uh, I always knew, I mean, for starters, it's, it's not a movie about um, metal music or any music. It's, the music is there and it's part of what they did and, it would have been weird to make the movie without any music, but it's kind of like painful to listen to black metal music too much, especially in a big movie theater. It's so I try to just, you know, just have enough to show that they were super creative and they created this genre of music, which was incredible that they actually created it. And I also try to show with the music that they got better and better because in the beginning they're kind of like fumbling around with their instrument. And then later in the film, you can see that they really found their sound and they're like really damn good playing the instruments. Um, but I needed a tool to push the other side of the story, which is this pretty advanced and weird relationship drama between these characters. Um, and I've always used music. I'm not the kind of director that just puts music on every scene, but I've always used music as one of my tools to... You know, sound effects, edits, sound effects and, and edits and music has always been kind of like how I do stuff. And um, Sigurd Ross has been, uh, I used Sigurd Ross as temp music and I gave Jonesy in Sigurd Ross the, the, the script very early on. He read it uh, really early on. And uh, it's, it's pretty much a dream coming through to actually have them help us and work on this movie. And they connected to the story and their music works so well to balance and helped me with that part of the story, you know. So it's it's perfect to the way it worked. That's for, yeah. It's a it's a lovely juxtaposition, and I, I guess like the the speed and the the franticness, it gives you somewhere to move from as well. It gives you a baseline, absolutely, from which you can yeah. pick up uh, for the more aggressive scenes. Obviously, your musical background uh, in Bathory, you you sort of departed that stylistically a little bit when you moved into, like, you know, a lot of the, the huge names that you've worked with in music are about as far from metal as you can get. Was returning to those roots part of the reason that you wanted to do this, other than feeling the, the need to sort of demystify that narrative with, about those kids? Mm, I don't know. It's, it's weird because I, I really left that scene um, when I discovered film editing and eventually became a director. I, I really left that scene, but in a weird way, I kind of never did because the music has always been there. Most of my best friends are still in that world. So it didn't feel like it was like, oh, I'm thrown back to, <laughs> <laughs> you know, to the early 80s, you know, and I'm gonna put on a leather jacket and, 
and pretend that I always was metal because I was always metal and I always had one foot in that world. So it didn't feel, and a, and a lot, especially in the first act of the movie, there's so much that's drawn to, drawn uh, inspiration from my, my real life and how, how I remember those early years in metal and how, how friendship and how fun it was and how we played around with symbols and we actually had these parties where, you know, and girls were like kind of like scary and we like, we were, you know, we were like young boys, like listening to music and having fun. And I, I really try to add that into the first act of the film. Um, so yes, a little bit. It was a little bit time traveling, but it felt uh, like the, one of the most given thing I ever done because uh, I've been thinking about this movie for so many years and uh, trying to get it done and thinking about the characters and really thinking about what this movie should be, you know, and what it could be. And in terms of in terms of uh, the other thing you said, like uh, I I have worked a lot with metal in when I do my music videos too, but. I know it's been a little uh, heavier on, uh, especially female artists, and I, I, I don't know how that really happened. I, I, my first American job was to work with Madonna, and and, and uh, that kind of like became, I got, I got a lot of energy from it, you know? So it's, to me, one of my strengths, or actually one of the things I need as a director is to uh, be pretty extreme in the different things I do. I don't necessarily have to work with music that I love or like or, uh, I don't, I don't, I, I'm, I, you can't as a director just like do one thing. Like a lot of artists, like they focus in on zoning on one thing, but as a director, I feel like you need to be able to work in different countries, different formats, different assignments, you know, meeting, uh, collaborating with different types of artists and sometimes do stuff for yourself and sometimes be on hire and like all those things. And I'm, I'm lucky enough to, have these different countries and different type of artists that I work with and it really fueled me and it really learned me I learned a lot you know I learned as much working with Rammstein as Madonna and like you know and one thing leads to another one thing fuels another thing in my head going back to Lords of Chaos and the um, and the development and the script and and obviously the edit which is going to be a, a, a focus for you the balance when you're you're talking about painting these characters as, as sympathetic and real life people, the balance between humour and the explosive violence in the film is is in, incredibly well mm. met. It's very difficult as an outsider. Obviously, you know you, you would have had your your plans all along, but as an outsider reading the script, you don't necessarily see where that line falls. Right. Um, how much of that is fine tuned when it's on the page compared to the edit? Like, how much do you? take the footage and shape it to what you'd imagined. Right. Well, quite a lot, actually. I mean, you always have, like, an ambition with your script. And I, I feel like because me and Dennis, we worked so hard on the script and we were not, never on, really on a deadline for it, so we really took our time to fine-tune the story. The problem with the story is that if you meet somebody or read somebody, there's new angles, there's new things that you didn't know and new rumors and new facts and this and that. So it's like, there is really like a never ending development in this. And, um, but what I, I want to tell you that I feel like the movie is pretty damn close to what the script was, but there was one thing I didn't know, which is the biggest thing of the movie that I didn't know in writing that I discovered in the editing. And that was that the movie, I couldn't, I didn't have time to sidetrack too much away from Euronymous. And uh, 
because I had these backstories with all the other characters. I know, I'm sure you yeah, and me spoke yeah, yeah. about it. And in truth, you know, like Fenris and Metallion and Slayer Magazine and the music and the parents and the police investigation and the trial and like, it's probably a, a TV series. Like, so if in, in the real world, I could have done like an, an hour episode on all these sidetracks that I just couldn't fit into the movie. Uh, so not until the uh, not until the edit it became clear to me that the main focus of this movie is the relationship between these three boys but but eventually between Euronymous and uh, Varg uh, so when I discovered that it became much easier for me in the movie uh, in the editing it's like well that is the most important thing with this movie so and maybe now when you see it the second time you'll think about that in a different way but that's really my main focus and then Dennis told me who I wrote with also, uh, he also told me, because I, I tend to, I, I, I wanted the first act to be funny because there, there, there's no way you can do something about young boys and music in that era without having pranks and stupid jokes and being a little silly when you take a step out of the bubble and look from the outside in, it's funny. You know, the best music movie is still Spinal Tap. It's just like, we gotta face it, that, you can't beat that, you know? And it would have probably been easier to make uh, a Norwegian black metal comedy, uh, but which I didn't want to do. But that would have probably been easier. Um, you you probably got away with a lot more. And uh, but there was a, there was a chance for us to add in some jokes, and there was a, a chance for us to have the audience step outside the bubble. Like the journalist shows up in Varg's place uh, to do the interview. The, the comedy in that scene is that you suddenly see it from the outside and he looks around and it's like that's when you see how extremely silly everything is. So to add these kind of small jokes here and there was, I think it gains to the movie and it's, it's also real life, you know, that interview with, with the journalist, that's exactly word by word what they said, you know, so, and it's, fuck, it's fucking funny, you know, it's <laughs> like, um, so... So Dennis said to me, keep every joke, uh, put in every joke that you can. And uh, the truth is, in the edit, it's so easy to take in a joke. But you can't really create a joke in the edit. So, you know, so we just kept that balance in there. And, and I know it's tough for the audience to... Uh, I mean, it's tough to watch this movie in, in, in general. I'm, and I'm asking a lot from the audience to actually sit through this with the music and these strong emotions. And then a joke on top of that. It's like, I can tell when the audience go like, really? Are we supposed to laugh now? You know, <laughs> so I know that it's. Uh, I know. I know that's the case. You know, and people ask me, "What well, is it? A drama? Is it a horror movie? Is it, what is it?" And I'm, I haven't really figured that one out yet. But uh, uh, you know, that's that's just the movie I wanted to make. So the the brutality of the film is obviously being talked about. Um, that's your fault. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm unbelievably proud of how it all comes across. You've yeah. You've made me look very good. <laughs> okay. Well, you made me look very good. So that's uh, that's a good thing. Well, thank you. Um, now it faces the next hurdle, which is I believe the MPAA is requesting edits be made for an R rating. Yeah. Does, are you going to be going for both an unrated and an R rating, or? Uh, so this is the case. Like part of the deliverables when you when you when you work with uh, American finances and stuff is that you need to deliver an R. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was fighting and trying to explain that why I, I, all, I felt more than ever that I had reasoning for why the movie is the way it is. And uh, 
and 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 I just had to go through the process, and it was actually painful, and it was and it was incredible to see what it made, what it did to the movie. It was incredible to see how not only did it affect those highlights or, or low lights, I don't know, but those moments that was a little edge on top. When you shave them off, like the other edges that was on low was also shaved shaved out. So it didn't only just affect these three murder scenes, but it also made the movie flat. It was like, and I learned from it, thank you MPAA to, for <laughs> give, learning me the, or, or reminding me that I was right. But what happened is that when you tone those things down, you know, like for instance, if you tone down the suicide, you don't really feel uh, as strong as Euronymous do when he flashes back to those moments and you don't understand why he's doing it. So it's almost like it's flattening it, the whole movie down, not just these three scenes. And luckily for me, all my partners, um, to the point where I had to actually say, I'm not coming to Sundance. I'm pulling back the actors and we're not coming if we're going to show the R-rated version. It's not, that's not the movie I made. And uh, so we're not coming. I'm not, I'm not ever going to sit through and watch that movie. And uh, luckily for me, my gangster method worked and we, <laughs> we, we played my version in these festivals. And in the reviews and in the Q&As, and talking to the people, it became clear that these moments are very important to the movie. And so everybody agrees. So what's going to happen now is that the unrated version will be released in the US. And uh, Cinematically? Or? Yes. Oh, amazing. Uh, which you can do, but you have to advertise it as unrated. Yeah. Uh, but um, it'll be harder on some of these... Well, streaming services doesn't really have the same system as the theatrical and then of course in different countries like Germany it's really tough you know they yeah. they they are going through that now with my other movie that I just did with uh, I was surprised how sensitive they are in Germany for instance uh, and other countries and um, of course I want Lords of Chaos to come out and I'm not going to be I'm not going to pull any gangster <laughs> moves with uh, with the movie if, if the audience doesn't get a chance to see it just because of that so any country, and I know Sweden and Denmark and some other countries are cool with uncensored. So the more places the audience can see my version of the movie, I think the bigger the effect it's going to be. But, but the thing is also that it's, if you, and in these discussions, it's like, I was even told that if this would have been a horror movie, you're fine. Really? And, and I was like, can we call it a horror movie then? <laughs> you know, I was like <laughs> trying everything, but it's not. Well, well, you can call it that. You know, Lords of Chaos, you know, like, but the thing is that the, the fact was that they eventually they told me, Jonas, you don't get it. The reason why we have this problem is that we feel too much for your characters, you know, and I was like, wow, that is, how could that be a bad thing? Yeah. You know, that's incredible, you know, and, um, and you know, um, because that was so, the whole intention of, of the film was to try as hard as I could to be as close to the reality. Yeah. With, and of course it's hard, and that's why I have in the beginning of the movie based on truth and lies. Um, but we do know a lot of things, and we have pictures of a lot of things. And I try to, and reading police investigations, especially about the murder yes. scenes, yeah, yeah. like you and me took part of, so we knew he cut his hair. And I couldn't really see the difference of not being real in those moments as much as I wanted to be real in the other moments in the film. So that was my main motivation. Yes, it was brutal, but... and. Yes, it was, it's tough for the audience to see, but 
it was all the other things in the movie was also real, and I wanted to have that in the movie. And I remember us talking about that, and you did such an amazing job uh, by making it real. Um, and you, you should hear people asking me about, oh, CGI this and CGI that. And I was like, this is old school. <laughs> like there was a guy in a plastic bag sitting with a pump, like right outside frame, like pumping that blood. You know, old school prosthetics, heal and reveal, and like old school. And um, the same with, uh, I, I have to give uh, props to Laws, who made the uh, wigs too. It's oh, like, yeah. You know, it's like because I keep seeing these movies with actors and instruments and wigs and it doesn't work. But the fact that Loss and you, the makeup department, did such an amazing job. It, f it doesn't really, f it feels like the most natural thing in the world, yeah, you know. The wig works very, very good in the film. Yes. And I mean, how many moves, movies have we seen when the wigs and the special effects works that well? You know, and especially, you know, our... our our extreme budget was a challenge, you know. Yeah, so that was something I was going to say, is obviously it's, it's the most uh, serene of your films, despite the extremity. Behind the camera, obviously, it was a little more frantic. We were making, stretching every, every dollar, yeah. every pound to go as far as possible. What, what you achieved and your production team achieved on not, not a particularly generous budget is very, very impressive. So there's as with all the juxtapositions in the film with the you know the violence and the serenity the music and and the visuals there's also this split between in front of and behind the camera mm. go back to something like spun which is so frantic and in your face was there a nice was was the the frantic nature of that mirrored behind or was it because you were planning it all was it actually much more serene behind camera than lords of chaos i I mean, it was a completely different time. I mean, we didn't take drugs when we did Spawn because I had a rule that, and, and methamphetamine is not the type of drug that you can just <laughs> to do for research. So that was like, I said, we can party and we can be crazy throughout this shoot and I want that energy to be in the movie, but we cannot try the drug. You know, the, the movie is about this drug, but we cannot try it. It was, I was always very focused and I know that the lower the budget, the more prepared I, has to be, I have to be. Um, and, and, uh, and we, but I mean, a few movies, movies later, and I think the biggest, biggest difference between making Spawn and making any other of my movies, actually, and now making Lords of Chaos, the biggest difference is, other than my confidence and experience, obviously, because I've been working since, but also making... A, the first movie that I really cared about. This was a movie that I really, really cared about. So when I was passionate about it and when I set down my foot about stuff and I really, when I wanted, and when I was begging people to help me and working and, and I mean, you and the rest of the crew was fantastic for that, believed in the project as much as I did. You know, there was a, I'd never done a movie like that because my movies before has been like, oh, whatever. This is like, okay, oh yeah, okay, let's do a drug movie, fun. You know, let's do this thing. Okay, cool. You know, so all my other movies has felt like another music video or another commercial or another art project, you know, while, while this one really meant something to me. And, I, I, and I, it was almost like I couldn't go anywhere after, I couldn't go anywhere, anywhere before I did it. I was like putting everything on hold. I was like, I have to make Lords of Chaos. And that's why I went straight from Lords of Chaos to another movie right after, because I was like, okay, I'm ready to 
to branch out and, and do something completely different. And then I, so I went from this really small movie that meant something to me to this big action movie that was just fun. And, you know, so it's like two extremes again that, you know, energized me, you know. One thing we do on the podcast is we always end with recommendations based on the film that we were talking about in that episode. And then okay. also recommendations from things that we've just we've just seen recently that, that took our, our fancy. And I've heard you talk in interviews about the fact that most of what you watch is documentaries and indie films and that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Is there anything either uh, sort of emotionally connected to Lords of Chaos or just that you feel is underappreciated or underseen that you'd recommend to the podcast listener? Well, if, I, if I'm... Uh, <clears throat> if I'm going to think about something recently, uh, I would probably say Climax. Yes, um, wonderful. Yeah, and I was lucky enough to see it. It was actually playing right before uh, Lords of Chaos in a, in a festival in L.A. And Gaspar is a friend, and I I think I can say that I love every movie he ever did. I really like what he does, and he uh, he inspires me as much as he pisses me off. Because I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I'm like... I get, I get inspired and reminded of what integrity really means in filmmaking, because it's so easy to lose that along the way. But then I get a little pissed off that he has that full integrity. It's like, how the hell does he do it? It's so hard. Yeah, you know, even on Lords of Chaos, I had to debate and, and argue and get stuff to that point. That was my movie. I wrote it. It's my story. But I still had to compromise and cave in. And some guy always decides over me. And I don't think Gaspar have that. You know, it's like, there's no way somebody told him to do something on this movie. <laughs> so I'm always... Uh, I love uh, Gaspar and, and what his movie is doing to me. Uh, not only enjoying the movie, but afterwards it stays with me. And, and I'm, as much as I'm loving it and get inspired, I also get pissed. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's a fantastic film. And actually, another, another film that Arrow are releasing in the UK as well. Oh, so, really? Yeah, so Arrow have oh, good. Chaos and Climax. Fantastic. <laughs> it's funny because when we did uh, our festival tour for Spawn, he did his festival tour for uh, Irre Irreversible. Yeah, that would have been That's when I got to know yeah. him because we had like parties together and stuff at Sundance and shit like that back back then, which is almost fifteen years ago. Wow! Yeah, both very different films, but with a very personal stamp. Yeah, for both of I mean, own. and of course, I mean, Gaspar is doing his thing, and and I'm obviously doing a lot of other things. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking time out of what I presume is a very busy schedule, especially given that you're doing not just the junket, but also the. Yeah, no, <laughs> all good. I love to being in London. I'm, I was so happy to get that email from you. And I never really felt like I got a chance to thank you because you were amazing to help out in the movie. Oh, man, thank and you. Loss, you and Loss, and I was like, I can't believe that I worked with this fantastic team on this small little movie. You know, and I think about it a lot, and I get a lot of comments about what you and Lost did. It's it's incredible, and I really hope that we can work again. Well, that would be an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah. Okay. There we go. Always nice to talk to Jonas. Um, those of you who follow me on Twitter will have seen me being all uh, ghoulishly excited about some of the uh, slightly extreme reactions that happened uh, at the screening in Glasgow. But uh, I do want to say that Arrow have been uh, sort of trying to deal with this film in the most sensitive way possible because of some of the more extreme um, and unpleasant things that it deals with. Uh, and so they've been working in relation with uh, both the Samaritans and a charity called The Mix. 
So if anyone out there is um, experiencing any of those feelings, please get in touch with those charities, um, but also uh, perhaps treat that film with a little bit of caution because as, um, as excited as we genre fans can get about some of this horrible stuff, um, obviously for some people, experiences are a little different. Exactly, that's that's well said. Now, recommendations. Uh, I had recommendations on the Climax episode, but they're lost to the sands of time. Uh, and all I've been watching for the past couple of weeks is E.T. and Terminator 2, um, because I'm actually launching a new YouTube channel called Deep Cut Videos today. And the first video essay is about how they're basically the same film. So if you're interested in watching that, the link will be on at Deep Cut Videos on Twitter at some point today. But I can hardly recommend E.T. and Terminator 2. Um, as you've probably seen those and maybe heard of them. Uh, so I'm going to pull Tim Coleman off the subs bench because Tim responded to our shout-out for recommendations in Extra Features a couple of episodes ago. And here's what Tim recommends. I'm just going to do one at a time. So uh, first one is, um, watched Ryuchi Sakamoto Koda last year and flipping loved it. Gently paced doc, examining the composer's career, collaboration, survival from cancer and the nature of film. It also includes Sakamoto meditating on Tarkovsky, while the film also achieves a Tarkovskian pensiveness and a beautiful stillness. So that's the first one from Tim. Dan, what have you got? Um, so I'm going to go through the previously watched recommendations that I did say for Climax, um, but then obviously have been lost to the sands of time. I, I literally have no memory of what I recommended, so... I've yeah. just got my old notes. Oh, well done. <laughs> Ooh, the nerd has written stuff down, eh? You mocked me for this last time, but anyway, carry on. I, you make me promise. You make me promise, Sam. <laughs> uh, the first is a, um, a TV movie uh, written by Jimmy Sangster, who we talk about quite a lot on the, uh, mm -hmm. on, on the podcast. Um, the amazing... Uh, Hammer and well everything writer but did a lot of Hammer and Amica stuff um, but specifically was responsible for Taste of Fear which I got very excited about a while back. Um, Foreign Exchange is a Roy Ward Baker film uh, Roy Ward Baker of Quatermass in the Pit and Seven Go Legends of the Seven Golden Vampires all that kind of stuff. It's a really fun spy caper. It's about a, a sort of a British spy who's pulled out of retirement forcibly by the British government so that he can be uh, deliberately arrested over in Russia so they have a high-profile target to exchange for someone, uh, a Russian spy, that they want to release back into the Russian Secret Service. Um, it's as twisty as you'd expect from a Sangster script um, and everyone speaks to everyone else with such a high degree of contempt that I found it incredibly exciting. <laughs> that sounds great. That's really good. And uh, the next recommendation from Tim uh, is Never Here, not to be confused with the Lynn Ramsey movie. Uh, Tim says it was an excellent De Palma-esque quasi-giallo from last year about an artist who specialises in surveillance and voyeurism but may have chosen the wrong person as her subject. Super creepy, gorgeously shot, and constantly plays with and subverts genre tropes to keep you guessing right to the end. I dug it big time. So that sounds very much up my street, Tim, and uh, I, haven't, I haven't actually watched them yet because I'm, I've been watching E.T. and Terminator 2, but <laughs> um, I, I will check them both out as soon as possible, and I recommend that everyone else does the same. Dan, what is your next choice? Um, so my next choice uh, was brought to my attention by a friend and colleague um, called Rod Hamlin, who works for me in the effects shop, uh, and he 
told me about this film that the BFI were um, were sort of remastering. It's a lost, like our last episode, a lost treasure. And it's uh, directed by Ray Davis of the Kinks. It's called Return to Waterloo, and it's a sort of travelogue musical thriller. Um, oh, we all know that you love musicals. Yeah, I mean, that's the one thing everyone knows about Does me. Does it also involve Christmas and Star Wars? It doesn't involve Christmas and Star Wars, but that would only make it better. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the first sort of five minutes or so, we were thinking this, this could go very much either way. Um, and then with a fantastic musical cue, the sort of baddie is introduced. And the whole thing feels like a cross between like Dennis Potter and William Lustig doing a musical together. Blimey. It's astonishing. There is a really shitty print on YouTube, um, which if you can't control it, I think is so crappy that you'll love it and then want to watch the BFI version again, so I don't feel bad about <laughs> telling you about it. Um, but yeah, I can't wait for the BFI um, to, do a, to do a number on it. Yeah, that's it. It's a musical by... I think it might have been self-funded. I think Ray Davis may have actually paid for it himself. It broadcast once on TV and then just disappeared, I think. Oh, wow. But yeah, really worth tracking down. That's uh, Return to Waterloo. Sounds awesome. Right, extra features. Extra features. Extra features. Extra features. Extra features. Right, as promised, here is that border interview. Uh, You will hear my voice, uh, then the voice of the lead actor, Euro Molinoff. Then you'll hear Abby before we go back to Euro. I just want to make that clear, because there's a few voices in there, and, you know... Yeah. yeah. Border is out this Friday. Uh, it is amazing. Uh, honestly, everyone's been raving about it, and I loved it. Um, it's a really, really interesting uh, look at monsters, and uh, we actually talked about monsters in the interview, so have a little listen to this. It also kind of ties into um, what John Linquist his representation of, of monsters in, in his work um, yeah. and in the original story because I mean in the, in the original story even Tina has monstrous impulses um, mm. uh, and so yeah what are your thoughts on, on monsters and how they can be used to represent kind of he's a monster <laughs> <laughs> directors have well, to be sometimes no. but the thing is I think still to this day there's like one prototype of monster or character and that's uh, Frankenstein yes and uh, I really think that that's like I've been thinking about this a lot like I it's almost like I haven't seen any other kind of monster than like a Frankenstein because at the end of the day you know you have creatures you have but when you when you say monster the word monster for me that the connotation is there has something to do with humans, but in twist, twist, it's like a twisted version of us. Mm. That as like some of our qualities, but in like in a different way, it's like another collage of our elements, mm. and that is Frankenstein. Yes. You know, yes, and that is really like I think every monster movie or what do you call it, any any kind of character that like has this like monster aspects it's always there's this quest the fundamental question is what is what are the limits of humanity yes what is it that makes us human what is like if you said if you thought about us like a car or what a vacuum cleaner or whatever what would be the that element that you couldn't take out mm. what would be the that element you can't take out of a car mm. if you took it out it's not a car anymore mm. you know what is that for us and and what are the limits of like how much we can 
edit ourselves and and like take out and pull in exactly. and we're still you know exactly. and what happens yeah. if we edit ourselves like that that we take this part away like mm. if we take empathy away or if there's so much hate and sorrow that the empathy is like it kills the empathy what yeah. kind of behavior start, what, what 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 happens you know which is very frank exactly exactly well. yeah, yeah. exactly and and what I think is that we can see that kind of behavior now in this world quite much. We're quite divided, yeah. and that's because you know people are people are so full of hate because of the sorrow. Right, that was Lovely. great. Yeah. So uh, let's do our social media, Twitter, all that business. Yeah, Dan. I am at 13fingerfx on both Twitter and Instagram. Um, you'll slowly start to see flurries of photographs um, of Sintra, the amazing place down in Portugal where I've been spending most of my time recently. I'm now officially allowed to say that I've been filming The Colour Out of Space. The, oh, cool. The Richard You're Stanley Lovecraft adaptation. Yeah. Um, With who? Well, we wrapped Nicolas Cage um, and Jolie Richardson last week. Uh, we still have uh, some of the other actors. Uh, we have a week to go. Um, I can't say who else because that hasn't been announced. Mm. But um, yeah, it's very exciting. I could not be more in love with the cinematographer. It looks gorgeous and Richard is an absolute delight. Uh, for example, uh, night before last, uh, he and I were wandering around a network of underground tunnels in Sintra that we found around the back of the, uh, the location after having taken a trip up the woods on an unmarked path to find an old Masonic temple. Uh, <laughs> so it's yeah absolutely lovely it's amazing fun. so yeah pictures of that kind of thing yeah Obviously, i can't I, put pictures up of the film no but yeah you, you took a lovely picture um from from that location so um i am in two places now i am at deep cut videos which is uh where you'll see the et and terminator 2 stuff uh on twitter uh i am also at sam ashurst where I will be in the last stages of promoting Frankenstein's Creature on DVD, because there's only around, I think, 13 or 14 copies left. Um, so if you do want that, they are about to be gone forever. When's the official release date? Um, oh, and yeah, it's actually out on March 18th. So yeah, that is incredible. Like the fact that, yeah, we've almost sold out before that. All in pre-release. Is, is amazing. So thank you, everyone that supported um uh, from this podcast I'm sure loads of you have bought it and I really really appreciate it right let's say our goodbyes I think that's everything sorry again for Climax but um, next time we are doing Sister Street Fighter we are indeed hopefully <laughs> but um, thank you so much for listening and we promise to be more professional next time if give, it, that's, give it a go if that's even possible yeah I've started writing stuff down Sam yeah amazing right <laughs> bye bye bye